This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Not guilty. Those are the words Clarence Moses Eel has been saying for almost 30 years. And last week he heard them from a jury. The Denver man, who goes by Moses, always maintained his innocence in the face of a 1988 rape conviction. That conviction was vacated last December. He was released. But there was always the understanding he could be retried. He was. And last week he was acquitted. Moses and one of his attorneys, Eric Klein, are back with us. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank, Thank you, Ryan. You spent 28 years in prison, Moses. I wonder how that time compares to the 11 months that you were free, but uncertain whether or not you'd be going back to jail. I had to look at the situation and come up with my own little plan about how I'm going to deal with it, the hardship as well as the ease how I was going to, you know, cope with it. Yeah, and Uh, what did that plan look like? It varied from exercising, meditating, staying in contact with my attorneys. They was always there to say, hey, Mo, wake up. Don't don't go into this coma. I guess the point was not to go into too dark a place mentally. That's basically it, because if you go there mentally, state of darkness— It's almost like it's over. Did you act for those 11 months like you were out for good? Or did you, I don't know, like hedge your bets to some extent in case the trial didn't go your way? It was a combination of both. What were steps that you took as if you would be out for good? Uh, I went to work. Doing what? My recent job is uh, inventory, you know, going to various department stores and doing inventory. Uh, That was also a challenge, too, because, you know, I'd never really been in that type of environmental setting where, you know, the work was kind of tedious, opposed to being in prison where work is a little bit lighter, you know, to some degree. But Huh. I I would have thought it would be the other way around, but... uh... So you you went to work. And then what were examples of, I don't know, a moment when you thought, I'm not sure what the future holds, so I don't want want to make that investment yet? It wasn't really a moment like that. I'm I'm not saying that the thought didn't come, but I didn't want to think like that. So I immediately dismissed that. Did you sign a year lease somewhere? A year lease? Yeah, I signed it with myself. I'm not going to evict myself. You know, I got to be out here. Let's review some of the history of this case. Moses, you were convicted in 1988 for the rape of a woman in Five Points, the Denver neighborhood. While you were incarcerated, you collected money to pay for a DNA test of collected evidence in the case, only to find that that evidence had been destroyed. Was that the lowest point for you, do you think? Yes, it was a, a down moment for me. But after hearing about it and it settled in me mentally, I said, I got to find another way because I refuse to be in prison for something that I didn't do. In 2013, one of your former neighbors, Elsie Jackson, sent you a letter hinting that he wanted to confess to something, which turned out to be the assault Jackson said he had consensual sex with the woman, but did hit her. All those factors helped lead a judge to vacate your conviction in December. 
but the DA's office was still able to recharge you in the case. Eric, how is that possible? I think of the, the term double jeopardy. What, why didn't this fall under that? Well, the law is that it was basically a do-over because the judge found that there was newly discovered evidence. Then the judge found that newly discovered evidence would probably result in an acquittal. Mr. Moses Seal just got the right to a new trial. And you know, our hope at the time was that the DA's office would see this case for what it was and not proceed to a new trial. Does double jeopardy apply now? In other words, he, he could not be re-retried. That's right. Okay. At this point, this criminal case is over. What were the challenges, Eric, of going to trial in a case where most of the evidence and witnesses were, you know, 30 years older? Well, obviously, there were challenges with memories um, and just people not having accurate memories. Uh, The prosecution actually brought in witnesses who had new memories, memories that were not uh, (laughs) that they did not have back in 1987 or 1988. And fortunately, the jury saw right through that. Another big challenge was that there were things that had happened since 1987, and the prosecution was able to block this jury from hearing about his efforts at DNA testing or the destruction of the evidence. There was a bill signed into law by Governor Hickenlooper in 2013 that calls for $70,000 to be paid to a person for each year they were wrongly imprisoned. Doing the math, Moses, that would come to almost $2 million dollars. And does this bill, I guess, first off, Eric, apply to Moses? Uh, I think it applies to him. We haven't really gotten into it, even looking at things yet. We've just been celebrating this victory and enjoying not having this hanging over Mr. Moses Seal's head at this point. Will you pursue this, Moses? Well, I would assume, but at this time, like, I'm just getting in the in the mold of being vindicated. In fact, I said the other day, I said, I'm not celebrating freedom, I'm celebrating being vindicated because that was the end result of the trial. That's so interesting. So it's less the being free physically and more almost the being free mentally. Have, having your identity, your record, your pride back, is that is that true? Yes, all that means a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. Because in prison, I wasn't realistically what you just described, I was a number. That takes away human dignity, pride, all of that. Is there any amount of money that that could really make up for what you've been through? No. I mean, when you look at a situation where you've been put away, you know... It's you looking at, 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 at the value of your life. Let's not say the jury. Let's not say the judge. Let's not say the president of the United States. You looking at your life and what you lost, what it means to you. And that surpasses monetary value. Let's just put the money aside. Yeah, what was the greatest loss, do you think? My liberty. My liberty and everything that came with my liberty. That means me going to visit my parents my siblings, going to the store, purchasing food. Are your parents still around? No, both of them passed away. Uh, My father in 2009 and my mother in 2014. Gosh, that's both both passed away while you were in prison, correct? Yes, along with my only two sisters and two of my brothers. 
Attorneys for the Denver District Attorney's Office said the victim in the case wanted to proceed with the new trial. The not guilty verdict means that her attacker presumably is still out there somewhere. Uh, what are your feelings about about her, Moses? She was injured and assaulted and subject to the brutal crime that she suffered. Uh, uh, as, a, as a person, and I don't think that no person should go through that, whether you're male or female. Um, but at the same time, you know, I got to now be focused on uh, rebuilding my life. Did you have a criminal record? What does this mean legally in terms of like what's on his record? As far as this case, yeah, um, we'll say that he was found not guilty. Um, frankly, we hadn't even looked into sealing the uh, the arrest record, but that is something that he should be avail- uh, eligible for. Colorado law prohibits employers from asking about arrest records. There's still the question, though, of you know whether this was so high profile. That it's hard to be anonymous. Do you know what I mean, Moses? Right. Has this been an obstacle at all? Because you talked about the work you're doing, the inventory work. Did the, did this come up? Uh, is it awkward? It's it's kind of awkward. There's quite a few things that you know is awkward and not so awkward. But you know, all like together, what's what's been awkward? I guess adjusting to. Having a place of residence um, where I had to go apply to vote and get ID and things like that. Uh, I guess that would be my bracket of awkwardness. What are your plans now? What do you, like, Give me your like top few hopes. I heard that one is to spend more time with your grandchildren. That's, that's one. In a sense, I kind of don't. Uh, want to hang out with them too tough because they took and beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> they beat me up on the football field really bad and uh, had me aching for days. Mm. But they my grandkids and I, I love them. Uh, so I want to spend a lot of quality time with them. Uh, alongside that, I want to get involved in a lot of community uh, programs and projects, working with the youth, working with the homeless, working with people uh, that have poor education or no education, trying to get them enrolled where they can go back to school. It's a lot of things that I've seen after being out there that I would like to play a very major part in changing it. Does your experience in prison inform that? Yes. Uh-huh. Seeing what the result can be of the lack of that. Right. And that's what fuels me, uh, being out here. Um, you know, I want to be involved in programs that will allow me to go back in prison because I think I symbolize a glimmer of hope for a lot of hopeless individuals in prison. Do a lot of people in prison claim that they're innocent? No, no. I've never witnessed that. If you don't, that's not part of the jailhouse culture. Usually, when you hear somebody speak about their innocence, they are really innocent. You can tell. You have to be a part of the the environment to be able to pick up on 
things that inmates pick up on. You get a radar. You get a, a, right. a sense. Interesting. Right. Eric, um, to wrap up, do you want to put this case into any context for us? Like, should we think of Moses Eel's experience as exceptionally rare, as the thing that only happens, you know, one in a million, a lightning strike? Or, or like, how do you think of it? I think that unfortunately it's a symptom of a of a system that still has a lot of difficulties. The fact that it took almost 30 years for an innocent man to get free, the fact that uh, he's been fighting all this time and that there was bad luck along the way, serious errors along the way, destruction of evidence despite a court order along the way, it shouldn't take 30 years for an innocent man to get free. Um, and I'm afraid that there might be other people still languishing there. We have real hope that the incoming district attorney, Beth McCann, is going to take a look at uh, at wrongful convictions, is going to put in some steps to really take a an affirmative uh, actions to try to look and see who's been wrongfully convicted and not fight against things. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Tell, tell those grandkids to be gentle with you, Moses. Hey, y'all heard what he said now. <laughs> <laughs> Clarence Moses Eel of Denver spent nearly 30 years in prison for a crime he always maintained he didn't commit. Last week, a jury acquitted him. Eric Klein is one of his attorneys. And we'll be right back with the founder of StoryCorps. We figured if there's anyone who can help you talk to relatives about the election over Thanksgiving and do so civilly, it's this guy. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Does your Thanksgiving turkey this year come with a side of dread that the topic of the election will come up when you see your relatives? Well, maybe it's a chance to really listen. So on the line with us is a guy who has encouraged loved ones to talk to each other civilly for a long time. David Isay is the founder of StoryCorps, which records intimate conversations that get stored at the Library of Congress. And Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. Happy to be here. If someone is interested in understanding a relative's opposing political views, what's a good way to start the conversation so you don't come out with guns blazing? Well, I, you know, I, I, we, when, when people come to StoryCorps, and we've had about a quarter of a million people, um, they don't really talk about politics that much. I mean, I think that the, that the critical thing is just to listen. Um, and you know what happens in a, in a StoryCorps booth is that people talk about what's uh, what's important to them, and what we found in these quarter million interviews, it's about you know their family, people who've been kind to them, how they want to be remembered. So those kind of questions um, in a in a StoryCorps interview work very well to to keep the peace. But I think in in general, it's it's all about listening. And you know one of the things we're doing this year at StoryCorps, we have an app now. So we have actually done a post-election pivot here. Um, we Every Thanksgiving we ask, um, well, actually starting last year, this is the second year, we ask U.S. history um, students, their teachers, to ask their students, um, social studies and history students in high school, to record an elder over Thanksgiving. We call it the Great Thanksgiving Listen. And this year we're opening it up to um, all grades, as long as you're uh, older than 13, to use the app at Thanksgiving for um, for a student to ask an elder about um, about the election and to talk about, to get wisdom. You know, StoryCorps is so much about kind of collecting the wisdom of humanity and to seek wisdom about how um, in this incredible moment of divide the country might come together. 
So you say the importance is listening. And I think that's really key because it's not about proving someone wrong or or necessarily going into a conversation trying to change their mind. Is that what I hear you saying? Well, that hasn't worked so well <laughs> so far, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, doing a, a story core interview, the, the idea of listening, it's not a panacea, but maybe, you know, maybe it, it'll be a little ripple of, of connection at this time where, you know, where, where, you know, it's not going so hot. What kinds of questions do you think people might have prepared? Well, for, for the Great Thanksgiving Listen, we, on, on the app, um, it's it's kind of a digital facilitator that walks you through the StoryCorps experience, and we have you know hundreds of questions on there. We have the great um, StoryCorps questions, which are those big life questions like how do you want to be remembered and the most important lessons you've learned in life. And around the election, we have questions like you know um, what are your hopes going forward, what are your fears going forward, um, uh, and and you know mostly wisdom about how we might heal the divide. And because Oftentimes, StoryCorps interviews, especially these great Thanksgiving listen interviews, skip a generation. So it's grandparents and grandkids. Um, we believe, and uh, you know, we've seen this thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, that people will, you know, take the conversation seriously and 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 do it with civility and and with love. Each interview goes to the Library of Congress, and people, you know, people take the experience very, very seriously. And we hope that, you know, we hope that teachers will get, will um, embrace this and have their students do this over the Thanksgiving weekend. I guess the point might be not to start with politics, but something... Absolutely. Yeah, something that's, right. that, that, that's a bit, um, I don't know, more about who they are beyond their political right. affiliation. Well, you know, again, in these, in these hundreds of thousands of StoryCorps interviews... People use in in the classic story core interview that happens in these trailers. They're forty minutes on the app. They're um, shorter, but you know people think of it as if I had forty minutes to sum up my life and to speak to future generations. What would I talk about? And you know political views don't come up that frequently at all in those conversations. I mean people are 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 talking you know kind of much more personally about um, about the people and the things that that matter to them in their in their lives and I do think that's a great way to start again I mean just across the country in general you know building that kind of social capital it's it's human nature to fear um, people that we don't know and that fear can metastasize into you know kind of even uglier feelings um, and this goes across the political spectrum from left to right. I mean, as a country, we, we are not listening to each other. I suppose that one option is to avoid the subject of politics altogether. That was the case for Jen Stanley and her father, Peter. They talked about their different viewpoints for StoryCorps earlier this month. And uh, a note, they didn't discuss whom they're voting. They have you know voted for in the election. I try to not bring up politics, but you always watch the five o'clock news and the minute any politician steps on, it doesn't matter who it is. I just cringe. And, Me too. Yeah. But you have to say something, whereas I would like to just pretend it's not happening. Or maybe the answer is we don't watch the news when you're there. <laughs> maybe. But now I feel like we've gotten to this point where we're together and we're fighting about politics. And those would be the times when I hear you say, I can't even talk to you, Dad. That reflects something you said there, Dave, I say, which is you don't think we're having these conversations nearly enough. Is that right? Yeah. And, but I think that, you know, as that, um, as that tape goes on, 
you know, they start, the, the, the dad and the daughter start talking about kind of misconceptions they have about each other. The daughter thinks that the dad thinks she's stupid, you know, and the dad very, you know, adamantly says how much respect and love he has for her. So, um, yeah, I think there's, I, I think that there's, in the, in the fire of a political uh, debate, you know, the, the kind of undergirding of, of love can get, can get lost. And, you know, if possible, we have to find a way to get, get back to that, to kind of build a future for the country. USA Today has a guide, which we've posted to cprnews.org, called Reaching Across the Red-Blue Divide. And one line that stood out to me, to underscore something we've already discussed, is uh, that you agree to set aside the desire to persuade, and that you truly do listen. What, what if you're offended by something your relative says? How do you keep going? Well, I mean, I think that you, um, you know, look, I've always, I always believe in, in, um, in uh, honest conversations. I'm not a therapist, and, you know, maybe that's a question for a therapist, but I think that you try and um, say something like, you know, I, I understand that's what you believe. Can you explain that a, a little bit more to me? Or, you know, or that, you know, that makes me feel a certain way. Um, you know, I, you kind of want to use your instincts and, and figure out how to, um, how to get to a place where um, where where the conversation isn't going to devolve into an end of a conversation, um, and that and that you can keep it going. And I think the most important thing is, if if possible, is to just reinforce how much that person means to you, and and um, and the fact that you love them, um, and and you know, see if you can find places uh, where you can where you can build a conversation, and it's not just going to fall off a cliff. Why do you think talking to people with different views on things like politics and, and hearing their perspective is important? Well, you know, that what that we at StoryCorps for all these years, you know, we I think that we've had um, in, it's mostly families talking to each other. Yeah. Um, and 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 politics doesn't come up that much. That interview that we just played from earlier this month is kind of a new thing for StoryCorps. And we're going to get into it uh, much more um, deeply uh, in the, in the coming years. But I think it's important for us to, to listen to each other, period. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the kind of rage and anger that, that so much of us, you know, have at this moment is, is not healthy. And, um, you know, if there's a way to get past that, you know, let's, let's see what happens. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting. We've done a lot of projects with, um, StoryCorps and, and all sorts of initiatives, and and the one that didn't work was um, I went to Washington to see if people on opposite sides of the aisle would um, sit down and and talk to each other about who they are as people and build start to build that social capital up again. And I was kind of laughed out of town. <laughs> so it may be worth it to try to try that again and see if we can we can move that forward a little bit. And that you know at StoryCorps we're just going to keep keep fighting the fight to to you know to get people to listen and to recognize the you know, the grace and, and beauty and, and the stories all around us. Um, Do you expect to have any difficult conversations over Thanksgiving? Myself? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, sure, of course. I mean, I don't, I, is there a family in this country that's not going to have a difficult conversation over Thanksgiving? Um, but uh, again, like, let's, let's hope that we come out of Thanksgiving a little bit closer to each other than we were and not a little bit you know, farther away. There have been a lot of articles recently, and I want to look up that USA Today article you mentioned. I'll check the um, CPR um, site. 
but you know a lot of articles about people refusing to go to Thanksgiving and refusing to talk to relatives and relationships ending and you know we all know that uh we've seen in the news and heard over and over again about the you know kind of the political bubbles that have um you know uh intensified and and yeah. you know there's just no way that that um that that making you know those divides even deeper could could be a good thing for the country. Dave Isay founded StoryCorps, and we'll post some of his advice a little later today to cprnews.org. If you do broach politics at Thanksgiving, we'd like to know how it went and what you learned. So call the number I'm about to give you and leave us a voicemail about how it went. It's 720-358-4029. Again, that's 720-358-4029. And if you missed that, don't worry, it's at our website. You might go a step further and record a conversation with a loved one. Use your smartphone and email us the file, news at CPR.org. We might use your experiences on the air as we continue to report on how Americans find common ground after this election. When we come back, water is for fighting over and other myths about water in the West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The federal government might soon force some Colorado River states to use less water. That does not include Colorado, but of course all the states in the river basin are closely connected. So today we're going to talk about the future of the Colorado River from the headwaters here clear through to Los Angeles. We'll bring you two reports from Colorado and California. And I'm joined by John Fleck, director of the Water Resources Program at the University of New Mexico. His new book is called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. And welcome to the program, John. It's so nice to be speaking to my friends in Colorado. Let's explain uh, what I said there about the feds possibly forcing some states to use less water. When, When would that happen and what's the trigger? The trigger is when Lake Mead, which is the big reservoir that holds storage water for Las Vegas and Phoenix and Los Angeles and the farms down there, um, drops to a trigger level of 1,075 feet above sea level. Um, and it could drop to that level as early as the as January of 2018. And when that happens, rules kick in that reduce the allocation of water to um, Arizona and Nevada, especially. Um, and so there's a lot of work going on right now in Arizona and Nevada and California to try to reduce their use now to conserve water ahead of time to prevent that shortage declaration from happening. And so far, they've been pretty successful. Mm. Yes, that designation possibly coming, as you said, uh, in the new year. You describe Lake Mead as a saving account for states like Arizona, Nevada, California, further down the Colorado River. And so if that savings account dips too low, they will be forced to use less water. And this isn't totally far-fetched. I mean, back in 2003, California was forced to use less water. You write, supplies to the LA and San Diego metro areas were cut in half literally overnight. Just briefly, how did that come about? Um, California for a long time had been using more water than its basic allocation. Um, I like to say they were overusing water. Californians would disagree and said it was their right. But the bottom line was they were using too much. They had to be cut back. Um, and the federal government actually stepped in to do that in January of 2003. But what's interesting about that story to me and, and why it plays such an important role in my book is that California 
really successfully absorb the cutback. And this is this really important lesson if you look across the western United States, you know, up there in Colorado, here in Albuquerque where I live, um, and across um, Phoenix and Las Vegas and Los Angeles. So when people have less, less water, they're actually pretty good at using less water. And so one of the lessons of the 2003 experience is that a mandatory cutback didn't doom Los Angeles. Los Angeles actually did fine. The folks in Los Angeles barely noticed. Oh. Uh, yes, and so that would certainly change someone's perception of what water scarcity means. Uh, what you're saying is that it doesn't mean necessarily that you can't thrive under those conditions. Is it possible that upper basin states like Colorado, Utah could be forced to cut back in the near future? You know, it's not yet clear. One of the things that's different about the upper basin is that um, you all, we here in Albuquerque, part of the upper basin too, um, are used to using less water when there is less water. You know, you're at the headwaters, especially important for the state of Colorado. And when you've got less snowpack above you in the Rocky Mountains, um, you have less water to, to use and to work with. And so you're already pretty good at using less water when there's less water in the mountains. Okay. Um, what might happen in the future is less clear as um, uh, water use and available water supplies declines across the Colorado River Basin. But, but um, Colorado is actually pretty good already at using less water when it has to. Well, in the meantime, some states are working together to try to avoid this federal intervention, as you say. Why don't we listen to a report from Lauren Summer of KQED Public Radio in California. Even in the sixth year of drought, there are still green lawns in Southern California, like this one in Burbank. For that, residents can thank the Colorado River. It's been the reliable source of water for us. We've been getting hardly anything from Northern California. Jeffrey Keitlinger manages the Metropolitan Water District, which serves 19 million people in Southern California. The Colorado River itself is nowhere near here. But 75 years ago, Keitlinger's predecessors were hunting for a water supply. We're building a great empire on the edge of the desert. If we're to survive and to grow, we must have the water. They got the water through a 240-mile aqueduct stretching to the Arizona border. Today, it's at least a quarter of their supply. But that supply is reaching a crisis point because of a triple whammy. First, with seven states vying for it, there are more claims to the water than the river can possibly meet. Second, a 16-year drought has hammered the river basin. And third... Climate change is playing a real effect on, on the Colorado River. It's already shrunk the water supply by as much as 15 percent. Add all that up, and the water level in Lake Mead, the biggest reservoir on the river, has been plummeting. So much so that an official shortage could be declared next winter. And that'll be a historic moment. It's never happened before. Arizona and Nevada would be forced to cut back on how much water they draw from the river. California wouldn't have to because it has senior water rights. So you wouldn't expect to hear what Keitlinger says next. We are having voluntary discussions with Arizona and Nevada about what we would do proactively to help. Help by giving up water before California has to, between 5 and 8 percent of its supply. Now, Keilinger isn't offering this out of the goodness of its heart. If Lake Mead drops too low, the federal government could step in and reallocate all the water, including California's. Lauren Summer there from NPR member station KQED in San Francisco. So, John, what are the chances that these states, again, the lower basin states of the Colorado River, will be able to find compromise? 
They are very close. I mean, I'm really optimistic about this deal. I've been watching it for a long time. And in fact, when I put, put my book to bed, they were still in the middle of it. Um, and I chose to be optimistic in the way I wrote the book. I think my optimism is, has been borne out so far, but it's a hard negotiation ahead. And it's complicated by the fact that the federal government plays a role. Um, and um, so it's not clear what might happen with a changed administration January 20th. So there's a lot of work underway right now to try to get this deal done um, this winter. Um, but I'm optimistic. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is that you already see, um, especially in Arizona and Nevada, but also in California, people voluntarily taking steps to cut back their water use, to reduce their water use, um, even though the deal's not in place. A lot of the things that will have to be done in the deal to reduce water use are already being done voluntarily. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. Lake Mead had been dropping as much as 10 to 12 feet a year because water users in the lower basin in Arizona and Nevada and California were using so much water. They have all cut back enough that Lake Mead is only dropping two or three feet a year right now. That's still a lot, um, but it's a much better situation than um, we could have imagined five years ago, given the um, drought and climate change impacts on the river that we're seeing. Yeah, and these proactive steps uh, really flies in the face of the phrase in the title of your book, water is for fighting over. You, you really say that's a myth and that Cut, yeah. Cutting back on water use doesn't necessarily mean less agriculture production or less growth in cities. There's this um, there's this old saying that's usually attributed to Mark Twain, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over. And, you know, that's where the title of my book comes from. Um, in fact, there's no evidence that Twain said it. You know, for people first started using it and attributing it to him, you know, probably back in the 1980s, um, like a lot of Mark Twain quotes. Um, he's really quotable even when he didn't say it. Um, but more importantly, um, it, it is a myth in practice. And if you look at water... Um, transboundary water conflicts in the United States and around the world, um, far more often what you see is people figuring out how to share water supplies, how to collaborate across boundaries, how to trade water, how to compensate one another um, for reduced um, flows of water. And so we have this long tradition, um, and it, it's sometimes a conflict ridden um, tradition. I mean, you know, sometimes it comes with a, th a threat of litigation l lingering in the background as the alternative to a collaborative solution. But over and over again, especially in the last 20 years, we've seen this really shift in the Western United States away from litigating and fighting over water and toward these collaborative solutions. And that makes sense because if you're a water manager, um, uncertainty is your biggest problem. You want to know what you can expect under water supply conditions five, 10 years from now. Um, and a negotiated solution gives you far more uncertainty, far more certainty than the uncertainty of, of going to court. And so what you see is people doing that. Combined with that, what you see also is enormous conservation success. And, and you see this up in Colorado. I mean, Denver is a great example of this. You know, water use in Denver right now is down 20%. This is total water use um, over the last 15 years, even though um, there's been a 15% increase in population. And you see this in city after city after city across the West. Um, but the other thing is that farm communities have also been able to um, succeed in using less water. Yeah, give me an um, example and still of, have, of uh, how under uh, a situation in which they have less water, agriculture has managed, in some cases, to thrive. 
so my favorite is is the um, little farming community of Yuma. It's actually not that little um, in uh, southern Arizona. And if you're eating lettuce this time of year, certainly through the winter, your lettuce is coming through Yuma, either from the fields there or the packing houses there. It's a great place to grow winter lettuce. And what the farmers in Yuma have done is shifted their crops to these high-value winter vegetable crops. They make a lot of money. It's good for the local economy. And shifting away from the lower-value crops that use a lot of water, especially during the summertime, like alfalfa and cotton. And so what farmers do when they have less water is change their cropping patterns. They also get more efficient in their irrigation practices. And the result is that even with less water, and we see that over and over again in these big desert irrigation communities that are, um, um, you know, irrigated with Colorado River water, um, when they have less water, they still do okay. Um, having a reduction in water is not a death knell to an agricultural community if we manage it well. Um, the alternative, um, and the state of Colorado has one of the most sort of dark examples of this is having cities just go buy out a bunch of farmers, fallow right. the land completely. Crowley County and, um, you know, on the on the plains east of Pueblo is the, an example of that, of the wrong way to do it. So we really need to be thoughtful about how we pursue this. Um, but there are great opportunities for these agricultural communities to still thrive in the face of less water. Let's take a break and continue our discussion with John Fleck, whose new book is Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. It's actually quite an optimistic book if you're feeling dark about water in the West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oh, we are paddling down the Colorado River And we are singing a Colorado River song. Yes, we are paddling. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's get back to my conversation with John Fleck, who's at the Water Resources Program at the University of New Mexico. His new book is called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. And I want to talk more about what Colorado and states around it, like Utah and Wyoming, are doing. John, you're actually under contract with the Colorado River Water Conservation District to study how climate change could affect uh, us upper basin states. What have you learned so far that's surprising? Well, the, the the study is really in its early stages and in preliminary, and I, I don't think anyone has been surprised by what we've seen to date, which is that there are risks if um, if and when drought and climate change um, cause a number of consecutive dry years on the upper Colorado River Basin, the water supply for the state of Colorado and, and, and Wyoming and, and Utah, and that... Um, as a result, it's really important for the communities that are sharing this water to be thinking ahead of time and preparing and understanding what they would do um, in such a shortfall. And, and, you know, the answer to that question, what we might do, you know, is a, is a question beyond what, what the, the study is doing. But it's, the idea is to provide some of the, the groundwork so we understand the steps that have to be taken to do the kind of things I talk about in my book, to collaborate and share. I mean, that's kind of what the study is all about. It's like, how do we go about preparing for and doing the things that in my book I argue for? And that it seems that there's, uh, and this is part of the, the feeling I got from reading the book, that there is a fundamental goodness in human nature that makes us want to get along when it comes to water. And that, again, that flies in the face of so much of what the story of water has been. Of course, right now, Colorado's interested in storing more water. 
And I want to focus on storage in this report from CPR's environment reporter, Grace Hood. There's a silent miracle that delivers water every day to Denver's 1.4 million customers. It flows through a man-made system of dams, diversions, and tunnels under the Continental Divide. A critical linchpin sits just east of the Rocky Mountains. Here, outside Boulder, Colorado, you find Gross Reservoir. Retired IBM workers Beverly Kurtz and Tim Genthner have called this place home for two decades. They live just out of eyesight from the giant man-made lake. And that's on purpose. I could have built a house that overlooked the reservoir. Do you think this is ugly? When it's empty, it's really ugly. No, it's pretty, but that's not the point. It's choking off a wild river, which, in my opinion, is never a good thing. Kurtz and Genthner have a newfound job in retirement. It's fighting a proposed expansion to Gross Reservoir's dam. The utility that owns it, Denver Water, wants to raise the dam 131 feet. It doesn't make any sense to build a multi-million dollar dam and disrupt the environment here when down the line that's not going to solve the problem. That problem is that Colorado's population is expected to nearly double by 2050. Future residents will need more water. Denver Water CEO Jim Lockhead says more storage is part of the solution. It's also an insurance policy against future drought. From Denver Water's perspective, if we can't provide clean, reliable, sustainable water 100 years from now to our customers, we're not doing our jobs. The demand for Colorado River water is already stretched thin. So it may sound crazy that places like Colorado and Wyoming want to develop more water projects. And legally, they're entitled to do it. Pat Terrell oversees Wyoming's water rights. The state is studying whether to store more water from a Colorado River tributary. We feel we have some room to grow, but we understand that growth comes with risk. Risk because Wyoming could expand reservoirs with proper permits. In 10 or 20 years, there may not be enough water to fill them up or deliver enough water to existing reservoirs like Lake Powell in Arizona. There's a contingency plan for that. But what unites all water planners from Colorado down to California is a need for certainty. They need confidence there will be enough water to fuel population and agricultural growth. Colorado River researcher Brad Udall says hotter temperatures and drought make certainty a thing of the past. Climate change upsets all aspects of the water cycle. Udall, a research scientist for the Water Institute at Colorado State University, says a 16-year drought has dramatically decreased water supply. This past could be indicative of what the future holds. He worries that flows across the basin could be reduced by as much as 20 percent by 2050. So we know temperatures are going to go up. We know the temperature increases will influence the river flows, and that influence is likely to be strongly downward. Right now, users along the Colorado River face a critical juncture. Deputy Secretary of the Interior Michael Connor says he recognizes the stress that climate change could have on future water supply. He also understands how overallocated the river is now. That overallocation of water, the imbalance between supply and demand is just going to increase over the next 50 years if we don't have some very strategic uh, plans that we put in place. Plans like the one California, Nevada, and Arizona are working on now to voluntarily conserve water. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And there was that word again, certainty. So, so much about storage is about creating more certainty in the face of climate change in particular. Is is Colorado prepared, John, if it had to all of a sudden cut back significantly on how much water it uses? You know, one of the important lessons, if you look at all these cities around the West, you look at Las Vegas, you look at Phoenix, you look at my own community of Albuquerque in Southern California, is that 
Um, we all have the ability to use less water when we have to, and we have the ability to, you know, really conserve in the face of challenges that sometimes we don't expect, sometimes we don't realize that are coming. And there's a really important um, um, premise that I think is a false premise that we need to guard against, which is that more population means we need more water. Because if, if we think that, then you end up fighting for increasingly scarce supplies. And I think once we recognize that we really can succeed in using less water in our farms and on our, you know, on our farms and in our cities. And that opens up an enormous space for these kind of cooperative, collaborative deals that really can allow us to share increasingly scarce water, to put water back in rivers for the environment that we value, um, you know, and also keep our, our cities and our farm communities, you know, intact with the, um, the way we love the West. But this is such a weird thing to absorb that more people do- doesn't necessarily mean more water. It's so counterintuitive in some regards. But what you find is evidence agriculturally and in cities that it can absolutely be the case. We see that we see this all over the United States and especially in the West. In the United States, water use by humans, the stuff we take out of our rivers and our groundwater, um, it's essentially peaked around 1980 and it's maybe been declining a little bit even as our population has grown, our economy has grown, our farm sector has grown. I mean, it's super counterintuitive. I realize that, but it's really important that we recognize this reality so that we're making our decisions going forward based on, um, you know, that kind of information rather than a fear of running out. I mean, that's the risk. And that's why, you know, I'm pushing this narrative so hard is that I think recognizing that possibility is really crucial to succeeding in some, what are going to be some really difficult times ahead? Uh, And so you say it's also a myth that we're about to run out of water in this book. And I I want to say that we heard that from a former head of the Bureau of Reclamation when I interviewed him in 2015. Frankly, every study that's undertaken shows that there is enough water. Problem is, it's just distributed incorrectly. Uh, And once you start pricing it, you will stop wasting it uh, and sending it to grow forage crops to keep part-time farmers in business. Is letting prices go up key in your mind to getting people to think about how they can use less? I think it's one really important option. It's yeah, my faculty appointment at the University of New Mexico is actually in the Department of Economics, and I hang out with economists, and they love this tool. And they like to say, you know, this is a tool in our toolkit that we haven't deployed yet. And so if you look around at places that have succeeded, one of the things that they have done is raise the price. Um, one of the things that I'm uncomfortable with in making that argument is that um, we have a system of democratic governance that's generally in charge of these systems. Elected officials don't like to raise prices um, on their voters because then they tend not to get elected. So I don't think it's, I think it's important not to count on price. It would be a great mechanism if we could figure out how to use it well. I think it's really important that we be um, realistic about the politics of this and understand that maybe we need some other, some alternative tools um, um, that could allow us to get to the same end. I don't think um, it is the only way to do it. John, we have about a minute left, and I'm fascinated by what you call another myth, that prior appropriation is not a big problem. 
Um, that's the idea popular in the West that the first person to put water to beneficial use gets to keep it as long as they keep using it. But it causes people to use more water than they need because they're afraid they'll lose it, right? In just about a minute. Well, well, I, you know, even that is a little bit of a myth. I mean, it, it does in some cases. In many cases, it doesn't. But prior appropriation also has been a sort of bedrock property right that used properly has allow us, allowed us then to do the sort of voluntary trading, buying and selling, compensating a farmer um, for laying out an alfalfa field to transfer that money to a high-value um vegetable crop or compensating farmers to reduce their irrigation in the heat of summer so that water can be transferred to the city. So, you know, if to the extent that we're going to have some markets um, around moving this water prior appropriation, the clarification of the property right is really key. But again, back to the political realities. It is what it is. We're not going to change prior appropriation as much as we might like to. John Fleck directs the Water Resources Program at the University of New Mexico. He also works with the Colorado River District to study the effects of climate change. And his new book is called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner.